the Wexner Center's Director's Dialogues aim to advance the role of the arts in sparking meaningful discussion about contemporary issues. This pre-recorded Director's Dialogue explores the intense and contentious debate surrounding the release of The Birth of a Nation, a cinematic account of Nat Turner's 1831 Rebellion, directed, written by, and starring Nate Parker. In 1999, Parker, along with his writing partner, Jean Celestine, was accused of raping a fellow female classmate. In 2001, Parker was acquitted and Celestine was convicted of sexual assault. In 2005, Celestine's case was dismissed after an appeal. In this discussion, we ask, is it possible to separate the message from the messenger? No one, certainly none of us at the WEX, could have predicted the swirl of media coverage uh, that emerged just really over the last three to four weeks uh, upon the revelation that Nate Parker and his former college roommate, who shares a story credit on the film, had been charged with sexual assault while students at uh, Penn in 1999. Uh, Parker was acquitted, his roommate was not. Eventually the case um, was dropped at the appeal stage. But as you might imagine, the reaction has been intense. It's been emotionally, emotionally heated. Um, and the debate still rages throughout film and academic circles. So upon learning that uh, the American Film Institute, based in LA, had canceled its screening, we here at the WEX huddled and reached out to several esteemed colleagues um, across campus to get their input and decided to go ahead with our screening. Um, but given the university setting that we occupy, to also orchestrate a forum for discussion and debate around the multiple, very complex, very integrated and interlayered events that surround the release of this film. And certainly as an arts institution devoted to contemporary art, um, we never shy away from controversial subjects. Um, the fact is that contemporary artists by their nature are um, producing work that in one way or another uh, is very much connected to the world that we all occupy together. Uh, and so it seemed really appropriate that um, we orchestrate this, this gathering. We were so gratified by the immediate and enthusiastic response of our colleagues, whom you will meet shortly. Um, for what seemed to be a kind of perfect storm of imperfection, um, imperfections that are embedded very deeply in all of the layered cultural, social, judicial, moral, and ethical issues um, at play here. So how does one begin to navigate this terrain which is filled with such explosive landmines embedded throughout? Um, rather than reciting my version of what those landmines might be, I'm going to leave that to our panel here today, but suffice it to say that it's um, an issue that we've all been grappling with really um, to its depths for the last many weeks. So with so many um, questions um, really still unanswered, um, we are incredibly fortunate to have with us um, an amazing array of four remarkable women, each with their own very deep expertise uh, in how we begin to 
at least attempt to unpack all of these issues from one another and have an open, if um, undeniably difficult, conversation. And leading that panel is Jennifer Beard, who was recently appointed by Provost Bruce McFerrin and Chief Diversity Officer Sharon Davies um, to serve as the director of the Women's Place here at Ohio State. Um, she is the first black woman to serve in that capacity. And I think many of you know that the Women's Place is responsible for catalyzing institutional change to create an environment in which women across campus are able to thrive, advance, and make their full contributions. Uh, there is a, a long uh, sort of record of, of achievement that Jennifer has, but in the interests of moving forward um, with the gist of today's discussion, um, I will allow you to read that in your programs. Um, and if you will just allow me a moment to also thank all of my colleagues at the Wexner Center. This event was pulled together in record time, as you might imagine, and um, we are so grateful in particular to Alana Ryder, our educator for university and public programs. So now if you would please join me in a very warm welcome uh, for Jennifer Beard. Thank you so much, Sherry. And uh, before you get too far, Sherry, I do want to say that there are um, some institutions that opted um, not to show the film. And I know that Sherry and her team deliberated earnestly and decided uh, to move forward. And that's what we do here at The Ohio State University, is we ask the critical question and have the critical conversations. So I wanna say thank you to the Wexner for their courage in moving forward and um, thank them for bringing us together as a community to raise the level of discourse. So thank you all. Um, So culture, ethics, and controversy, um, that certainly captures, encapsulates uh, what we're experiencing with this, the issues uh, swirling around Birth of a Nation and Nate Parker. And while we will try to avoid any major landmines, um, we will share depth and breadth of perspectives on the various issues related. Um, our esteemed panelists, um, will have a lot to say and a lot to share, and it will be a conversation and a discussion because you all will have the opportunity to ask your questions as well. So uh, first of all, we have Joni Boyd Acuff, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Arts Administration, Education and Policy here at OSU. Her scholarship attends to critical multicultural art education, critical race theory in art education, community-based art education, and culturally responsive teaching, pedagogy, and curriculum development. She has over 13 years of art teaching experience in both traditional and non-traditional classrooms. She has worked extensively with diverse populations of learners, including students with special needs, both cognitive and physical, students who identify as LGBTQ, and students from varying racial backgrounds and social economic levels and visual and cultural gender. I'm sorry. She has published in journals of art education, studies in art education, and visual, cultural, and gender. 
and is the co-editor of the anthology Multiculturalism in Art Museums today. Our second panelist is Leslie Alexander. She's an associate professor in the Department of African and African American Studies. She specializes in early African and African American diaspora history. Her primary research focus includes late 18th and 19th century black culture, political consciousness, and resistance movements. Dr. Alexander's award-winning first monograph, African or American, Black Identity and Political Activism in New York City, 1874 to 1861, explores black culture, identity, and political activism during the early national antebellum eras. During her time at OSU, Dr. Alexander has won several university awards, including the University Alumni Award for Distinguished Teaching, the University Distinguished Diversity Enhancement Award, and the College of Humanities Diversity Enhancement Award. She was also selected as one of the seven stars of the College of Humanities. Dr. Wendy Smooth, Wendy G. Smooth, is an associate professor in Ohio State's Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Uh, Dr. Smooth's research and teaching focuses on women's experiences in political institutions and the impact of public policies on women's lives. Her current book in progress, Perceptions of Power and Influence, the Impact of Race and Gender in American State Legislatures examines the impact of race and gender on the distribution of power and influence in the U.S. government. Her research for the project was recognized by the best, as, with the best dissertation in women in politics by the Women and Politics section of the American Political Science Association. Dr. Smooth's courses address various public policies affecting women and girls, topics informed by her work for the Center for Women Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. Distinguished panel, as I indicated, and I appreciate having the opportunity to collaborate with each of these women on our campus to make a difference for our women students, faculty, and staff. So each of them has prepared an opening statement and we will begin those, but I'd like to ask each of you, if I may, to uh, include with your opening statement a response to the following question. Will you see the film, Birth of a Nation? And will you be fractured in the process? Joni? Okay. Last name Acuff, I'm always first. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that the answer to that question is, is embedded in what I've written here. And I apologize in advance for reading. I usually am right off the dome, but being that it was only a few days ago, I had to write some things down. So um, I'll just start at the top. So I think this is a little bit too loud. Is it echoing? No? OK. It took me about a week to even click on the article that expounded on Parker's 1999 trial. I'd seen articles and links popping up all over my social media timelines, op-eds, critical responses by scholars, feminists, artists, actors, but I ignored them for over a week. I was strong. I didn't click. <laughs> I wanted so much to see this movie that I wanted to distance myself from the immediate attention of this past event. I just didn't want to know. Didn't want it to be true, didn't want to care. I realized that I felt this way because I was really longing for some relief from the constant narrative that my black body 
my sons, daughters, and husbands' black body just didn't matter. With the events happening in the U.S., I wouldn't be surprised if every person of color was experiencing racial battle fatigue, which is a mental, emotional, and even physical stress associated with having to fight racism and racial microaggressions on a daily basis. So I was looking forward to just two hours in the theater where I didn't feel so exhausted and so helpless in my black skin. But after opening that link and reading, I could not unread. I was not in disbelief. I mean, the story is typical. It's happened even recently here in the last few months where men have gotten menial sentencing for violence against a women's bodies, specifically in an unconscious state. So I was left confused morally and artistically about how I felt about the sexual assault and what I would do about seeing the film, and even more so, what I would say if asked about the situation. And here I am, invited to speak on a panel. <laughs> so I had to think about it. On one end, I need my mind and my soul, my psyche nurtured by this story. You know, I'm really struggling internally by the daily trauma that comes along with trying to function in a world that wasn't created for you to function in effectively. But on the other end, I must consider how I'm implicated in being complicit in the violence against women by supporting this film. I'm not retrying Nate Parker. It's clear the justice system failed the victim in his case just like it failed Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, Laquan McDonald, and countless, countless others. Unfortunately, justice system, the justice system fails victims of sexual assault just as routinely as it fails black men. This is why the inter intersectionality has me completely spent. It's inconceivable at any point in time to be asked to choose one oppression over the other, like a game, especially if you're in a position of a double minority. Which one will I be mo most loyal to? Which oppression wins today? Can they even be separated? No, I don't think so. In the end, I had to reconcile with the fact that I was both angry about the artist's actions as a black man and as a human violating and imparting violence upon a woman, another human, but also excited and literally yearning to hear and see visual imagery that illustrates a dynamic shelved narrative of a black man and a human that validates my black body as one that is strong and resilient albeit the latter was created by the former. As an educator, I've often found it quite valid to be in a space of confusion, a location of not knowing how to feel or how to understand certain information or experiences, and that's called a pedagogy of vulnerability. I believe the greatest questions are birthed from that ubiquitous, vulnerable location. And this is a space that I occupied and continue to occupy as I consider, consider this dilemma of the artist and his work, attempting to separate the two, but cannot altogether because they are interlaced intimately. Ultimately, I have decided to view the film. However, my support of the movie is less about supporting Nate Parker by disregarding his actions. It's more about supporting myself. At this moment, I'm completely selfish, turning my need to self-care. I'm mentally depleted seeing men, women, children dying in the streets literally daily. My black self needs this counter narrative, specifically in visual and artistic form, just because that's what easily nourishes me. I'm looking for the healing qualities of this film. Because of this, I've made a conscious choice to separate the two events, which I believe is still problematic on some levels, but it does give each issue their own attention and frameworks of interaction and thought. Parker's actions don't negate Turner's narrative that is being shared. Simultaneously, Turner's story does not bury Parker's actions. Therefore, I do appreciate the opportunity to address the topic of this film's immediate, view, this topic outside of the film's immediate viewing.
So with all this said, I've developed some questions and issues that come to mind as I continuously struggle in my dislocation and constant wavering. And some include speaking to the way a person's lived experiences inform their every thought and every move. If I were a sexual assault victim, would my self-care look different in regards to viewing this film? Another issue, art is education. Art is a medium through which to make commentary and also a medium to explore issues and be introduced to issues, whether it be the art itself or the artist. Can a piece of art still serve as an, an emancipatory tool, even if its creator has played the role of oppressor? Is, it, is saying that we appreciate a piece of art without deifying the artist enough? If not, what is the end goal to such accountability and how will it impact the world the art world in general. Lastly, Nate Parker performed in a socially constructed narrative regarding manhood. How do we respond to this very patriarchal, misogynistic narrative that is actually nurtured in college culture? And how, as a university, can we do better by victims, specifically when the justice system has failed? Thank you, Dr. Eka. Leslie? Thank you. Um, I want to start by thanking the Wexner Center for putting this panel together and my co-panelists for agreeing to participate. I, I actually received the invitation to participate when I was out of the country and so I didn't see the email until I got back and by then I had the benefit of knowing the other folks who had signed on and as soon as I saw the other people who were going to be on the panel I was like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> I want to be part of that crew. Um, I also, it's hard to see you all out there, but I, I can see a little bit and I can see that some of our colleagues from women's studies and from African American and African studies and from history are here. So I want to thank you all for um, coming out and supporting the panel and I'm sure that in the discussion you'll have a lot um, to contribute that we'll, we'll all benefit from too. I also want to thank all of you um, for coming out this afternoon and, and participating. Um, when I was asked to join this panel, I was asked to share some opening remarks about the Nate Parker controversy from my perspective as a historian. And one of the things that I found very quickly, as soon as I sat down at my laptop and was looking at the blinking cursor <laughs> trying to figure out how to put my thoughts and feelings about this together, I realized right away that it was going to be impossible for me to separate my perspective as a historian from my perspective as a human being, with a moral center, um, as a woman, and uh, more specifically as a black woman. So my opening remarks today are really going to be about how I came to learn about the controversy and what I've grappled with during the intervening weeks. And I hope that some of these reflections will inspire some discussion among the group. Um, I will say very honestly that for me, the most painful aspect of this controversy has been my own internal struggle over what I have viewed and what I have hoped about the film's potential historical significance, on the one hand, versus my horror over Nate Parker's past and the details that I read, um, particularly in the court record. Um, for me, I'm, again, I'll be honest and say that the struggle, this internal struggle that I've been grappling with is still not fully resolved or reconciled. So I, I feel like I actually sit here as the expert on the panel today with more questions than I have um, answers. I can remember when I first heard about Birth of a Nation 
I, someone actually sent me the trailer in an email, and I just watched the trailer over and over and over again. My mind was just blown that this film was actually being made, and I felt so hopeful about um, the film's potential. I actually sometimes teach a class on historical accuracy in black film, and so I'll say that I always worry about historical films and whether they'll actually be historically accurate, especially because I know the American public bases so much of what they believe about historical events based on film. I get really nervous, and no one likes to go to watch historical films with me because of that. Um, and I'll say I still worry about that for this film because I haven't seen it yet. But I still felt inspired by the possibility of this film um, because it was, it, it hopefully will be a movie that grapples with what I consider to be the true story of slavery in this country and shed new light on the person and the people who led what eventually became the bloodiest slave rebellion in United States history and a story about a person and a group of people who have typically been demonized in the retelling of the 1830 revolt, 1831 revolt. So the question for me is, why did I and why do I care so much about this film? And for me, it's because I believe that this country desperately needs a national conversation about slavery and its legacy. In my experience, most white folks would prefer to forget about slavery, to sweep it under the rug, and to move on. After all, as my students sometimes say, that was a long time ago. <laughs> But when white folks say that, I'll tell you what I hear. What I really hear is, why can't black people just let it go and move on? Why do you keep trying to bring up slavery? And my questions in reply are, why do you want us to stop, stop talking about it so badly? Why can't you face the truth of what really happened? And perhaps most importantly, why can't you see that it's really not over? The reality is that even though chattel slavery was abolished 150 years ago, slavery and its legacy live on. In the United States today, slavery's legacy survive in a, variety, in a myriad of ways, ranging from daily indignities in our communities, microaggressions in the classroom, to mass incarceration. After all, let's not forget that the 13th Amendment allows for slavery in America's prisons, and police brutality. Clearly, black people's lives still do not matter in the same way that white folks' lives matter. So in my view, the legacy of slavery is alive and well in America. And until we are willing to dig up our nation's past, examine its ugly underbelly, acknowledge what really happened, and recognize the connections to what's happening in contemporary society, we're doomed to continue to repeat our past. So perhaps I'm placing too much pressure, too much expectation on a movie to resolve America's racial problems. <laughs> Recently, a friend told me that I was naive for hoping that Birth of a Nation would spark a national conversation about slavery and racism. And if I'm to be totally honest, she actually laughed at me. <laughs> She's probably right. After all, 12 Years a Slave, in my view, is a, a beautifully made film about slavery, and yet it clearly did not solve the problem of racism in America. Even so, I naively continue to hope. Birth of a Nation probably would not and probably will not solve our problems overnight or at all. But I continue to cling to the hope, to the dream, that if it opens just a few people's eyes, that's a good enough start, right? So that's where I was after seeing the trailer. 
hopeful, inspired, curious, and a little bit nervous about whether or not the film would live up to my dreams. But then my dreams came crashing down. One morning, like most mornings, I woke up and reached for my phone to scroll through my email and the news before getting out of bed. This, by the way, is a habit I need to break. <laughs> so unlike Joni, I was like right on it from the first moment. The first images to reach my eyes were reports splashed across social media about Nate Parker and Jean Celestine, stories about how they had been accused of rape during their college years, and women across the country calling for a boycott of the film. So here's the hard part. It's not, me, it's not worth me telling this story if I'm not willing to tell the truth. So here's the whole truth. My first reaction upon seeing the stories was denial and frustration. It's not true, I told myself. It can't be true. Immediately, I thought about the long history of black men in this country being falsely accused of raping white women. Black bodies swinging from trees across America based on the threadbare lie that black men are brutes hell-bent on ravishing white women. I thought of the thousands of black men who were falsely accused and then killed or incarcerated for crimes they did not commit. My immediate response was to jump to Parker and Celestine's defense. This is just another example of how black men are falsely accused and their lives are destroyed over a lie. The media is just trying to discredit them, to discredit the film. So I just kept thinking it's all a conspiracy, right? To undermine the story of the slave rebellion, to detract from the film's message. And I know I wasn't alone in those feelings. Anyone who looked at social media and read the articles and read people's responses, you know that as the story spread, black folks all across this country shared my sentiments. Because we share a collective history about how black people have been demonized in this country. But then I kept reading. I read more and more articles. I gathered more information. And I had to start questioning myself. Then I read the court documents. I haven't read them all. The story was too disturbing. It was too horrifying. I, I actually reached a point where I just literally could not read anymore. But I read enough to know that I had to challenge all of my previous assumptions. Because in many ways, the story of that woman was the story of too many women that I know. The story of too many of my students. I suppose everyone will look at the evidence and reach their own conclusion, but based on what I read, I believe Nate Parker and Jean Celestine violated that young woman in the worst possible way, and they have shown little or no remorse in the years that have followed. So where do I go from here? As a historian and as a black studies scholar, I remain convinced that the film has the potential to be vitally important. I may change my mind after seeing the film, but for now, I still believe this country needs to see a film about slavery and about those who had the courage to stand up against it. I also continue to believe that the media has perpetrated the story in an effort to detract from and discredit the film. I just want to say as a side note, I think both of those things can be true. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think it's possible for Nate Parker and Jean Celestine to have committed a horrific crime and also for the media to be shedding light on it and highlighting it because they want to discredit the film. Both of those things can be true. But as a human being and as a black woman, I remain outraged and deeply disturbed by what Parker and Celestine did in 1999 and in the years that have followed. 
Perhaps most of all, I believe that people of conscience have to take a stand and denounce violence against women in all its forms. So where do I go from here? Will I see the film? Yes, but I'm not gonna pay for the ticket. <laughs> Fortunately, I convinced the Wexner to give me a free ticket for sitting on this panel. <laughs> so I feel like, honestly, as a 19th century historian, I feel like I have to see this film. Um, but I, my personal decision is that I'm not gonna support it economically. Am I gonna feel fractured while watching the film? Absolutely, yes, and I imagine I'm gonna feel that way through the entire film. And I'm still left with a lot of questions. I'm still struggling to reconcile how I feel. Is boycotting the film the answer? Is it an effective response to what happened in 1999 and in the years that, that followed? Will I show the film in my own classes? Is it possible to separate the message from the messenger? Honestly, I don't know. But for now, I'm still trying to figure out the answers to those questions, and to be honest, part of the reason I agreed to appear on this panel is that I'm hoping this discussion and dialogue will help me and help all of us work through these important questions. So I'm gonna stop there. I really look forward to the discussion. And I just wanna say for anyone who is interested in continuing the discussion after the film is actually released, on October 10th, um, the Department of African American and African Studies is sponsoring a panel. Um, on the controversy, but also on the historical importance and significance of the film. It's on October 10th, um, so I hope you all will come out. Thank you. Well, I realize I'm standing between a robust conversation with the audience, and so I'm gonna move through my comments quickly, but I wanna first really deeply thank Sherry Gelden and her colleagues here at the Wexner, who really remind us that universities are a place for great conversation. Sherry reached out, she engaged us in conversation in a very short period of time. <laughs> and by the time you got done with the conversation, there was nothing you could say but yes, because it was such an important time to have the conversation, that the Wexner was the appropriate place to have the conversation, and that more so our university needed to have the conversation. So I can't say thank you enough for um, extending this opportunity to me. I wanna start off light because I really, this controversy made me long for the good old days. And I'll tell you what good old days I'm talking about. Four o'clock every afternoon, the Oprah Winfrey Show. <laughs> because I had to come into the conversation over a number of different Twitter feeds and double clicks and a relentless reading and rereading and attempting to get my timeline together and did he say this before, after, when, in reaction to? And I just needed that one big Oprah-esque interview to sit him down in front of the world and to answer the questions. And to really see with my own eyes if I could detect any level of remorse, self-reflection, and learning. So indeed, I came into my womanhood, my young womanhood, at the height of Oprah's television show, Fame, the Oprah Winfrey Show. And for those of you who may be um, too young in the audience to remember those days, Oprah was famous for a mantra 
that she gleaned from her mentoring relationship with the great late poet, writer, and activist Maya Angelou. And Maya Angelou had instructed Oprah to think about some of her own past life discretions with this notion of, when you know better, you do better. And Oprah often lamented this frame in the wake of past issues and discretions that came up into our nation's viewpoint from our understandings of child sexual abuse, corporal punishment, eating disorders, drug dealing, drug use, and the like. It's a simple phrase. When you know better, you do better. But it's quite liberating. And I want to frame my remarks around that concept. When you know better, you do better. At the individual level, it's freeing and that it allows one to accept responsibility for the mistakes you've made. But it allows a way forward, and it allows one to learn. So it's embedded in this concept of being self-reflective. At the individual level, I wish for Nate Parker and his former roommate and co-author the ability to learn, to be self-reflective about their actions, engage in deep study to learn from their mistakes, and most importantly for him, I wish him to do better once that learning has transpired. Not just in his everyday actions, his everyday treatments of individual women, but in his bold commitments and his desires to be a leader in Hollywood, as a national storyteller, as a, phil a philanthropist, as a voice for those who are committed to learning and social change. This case is a classic case of when you know better, you do better. So what, we do, what do we know more about as a society? This is not reserved for us only at the individual level to take up this question, which in that case, we would really fail this moment if we only thought about our individual actions. So I'm far more interested in forcing us to move with this mantra at the societal level. What have we learned over the last 20 years about sexual assault, sexual assault on college campuses? For his individual transformation and commitments to action, I wish him the best. And I truly do mean that. Because for every individual, my greatest hope is always that you can experience growth. And so I do really genuinely wish him well, though I find his acts deplorable. However, Aside from his personal process, his personal transformation, however, on, on the other side, the societal responsibility that we collectively bear, the role that we have to play in enacting this mantra, when you know better, you do better. I want to focus my remarks on what we must do better. What do we learn from this moment? First, we have to accept the realities of where we are and really ask ourselves, are our behaviors in alignment with what we actually know now? This is the more critical piece of the conversation and where we continue to fail, in particular our institutions of higher learning, colleges and universities fail, if we are not careful to learn the lessons from this situation. We're, failed. We're failing our community of learners who are tasked with learning all sorts of life lessons and negotiations during their time on our college campuses. And I underscore all sorts of life negotiations. 
and largely this conversation and negotiation around consent is one of the life lessons that we do need to participate in our learners navigating. Unfortunately, what we do know is that over the last 20 years, the stats have not changed that much. Unfortunately, the numbers of sexual assaults that remain unreported are still projected to be quite high since we as a culture so often still fail to believe the stories of victims and survivors. That is quite prevalent. It's, it's a part of the Nate Parker story, but it's a part of the story that we see every day on college campuses. So Parker's story is one that will be reenacted on countless college campuses this year, this semester, this evening. It's not unusual. So there's the prevalence issue. 44%, and this is from our very own Sexual Assault and Civility Program here on campus, and they're with us um, in the hallways, um, so I encourage us to engage with them in the important work that they're doing um, on our campus. 44% of survivors experience a sexual assault under the age of 18. 80% of survivors who experience a sexual assault are under the age of 30. These are our students. It's us. One in six women and one in 33 men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Every two minutes, someone in the U.S. is sexually assaulted. 54% of sexual assaults are not reported to the police. So there's some unusual features of this story in that it was reported. In nine out of 10 sexual assault cases, the survivor knew the perpetrator. When we think about intimate partner violence, nearly three out of four Americans personally know someone who is or has been a victim of intimate partner violence. And women ages 20 to 24 are at the greatest risk of non-fatal intimate partner violence. So the myths that we tell ourselves that it's the big black brute who jumps out of the bushes and attacks is the furthest from the realities of sexual assault and violence in our communities and on our campuses. What is different, and I hope we get a chance to talk about this more because I think this is a part of the difficulties, the fractured selves that we bring to this conversation, is that in the case of Parker and his roommate, they were actually of a different race. They were both African American and she was white. And if we do any myth busting today, one of the things that we have to understand is that in most sexual assault cases, the assailant and victim are of the same race. So that is an unusual piece of this story, but yet a piece that drives the controversy in both silent ways and very overt ways. What do we now know as a society? Well, I'd like to think that we actually do know and recognize that rape culture is alive and thriving on our college and university campuses. And if we own our own, and I'll say stuff because we're being recorded, if we own our own stuff, then we know that on our very own campus, across the street from where we sit during our move-in week, we saw the evidence of rape culture right here on our own university campus. 
And I actually invite you to take a look at an open letter that my department, the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies issued in the Lantern to address the ways in which the ways in which rape culture remains so prevalent and the symbolic things that we communicate in our actions about who belongs and who doesn't belong. What I'd like to think is that we know more about consent and that we have invited ourselves to take hold of the lessons of what consent actually means. And if you haven't already, I invite you to read Gabrielle Union's very impressive and heart-wrenching conversation around consent, having participated in the film and in backing the film, learning of the transgressions that we're talking about today, the rapes that we're talking about, the rape we're talking about today, and then thinking about her own position as a survivor and thinking through our conversations on consent. But one of the things that we have taught and that we think we know is that consent must be articulated and can be withdrawn at any point. Consent is an, is an affirmative action, mutually grounded in mutual respect. Sober is the preferred state to offer consent. Alcohol or drugs does not allow a person to become a prime target for assault. We did it before. It before does not amount to consent. And the absence of no does not mean yes. No matter how, I hope we've learned that no matter how intoxicated or downright drunken to a stupor, no one ever asks to be raped. No one can dress the part to be raped. Clothing and behavior are never justifications for sexual assault. Regardless of our relationship status, if a person does not consent to sexual activity, they've been sexually assaulted. We now know that hypermasculinity is about dominance and control, and it lies at the heart of rape culture. We must understand and speak openly about expectations about masculinity and what it means to adequately perform masculinity and understand all of the ways in which that act is racialized. I'm actually quite sympathetic to the aspect of Parker's recounting of events in which he acknowledges his more than limited understanding of consent. His celebration and reveling of the hypermasculinity, the conquest and dominance, um, conquest and dominance culture that he participated in that actually undergirds and supports rape culture, and not understanding that what he engaged in did not constitute consent at that time. And I really want us to underscore at that time, because I do draw a distinction between what we knew then and what we know now, and what can we do better going forward. Now that we know some truths about consent, about rape culture, what are we doing better, right? This controversy over Nate Parker and his college roommate and co-authors past is significant for our own societal self-reflection and learning. For him, he finds it an inconvenient truth, inconvenient that it came up at this particular time, the inconvenience that it came up 
as of after a justice system had found that he was not to be held accountable. But I also have a realization, as my co-panelists have articulated, our justice system fails daily. So it is the court of public opinion, our responsibility as a society to rehash this conversation, to go over the court documents, to ask ourselves, would we do better knowing what we know now? It's our responsibility to have the conversations that challenge us to rethink what we thought we knew. Right? It's our collective moment for learning. So, so many have said that the justice system has spoken. Why are we rehashing this? I say it's our responsibility to rehash it. I am engaged in social change and social activism when I open every document and read every aspect. Now, that question from our moderator, will I see the film? I am deeply ambivalent, call it fractured. I don't know what I can learn. I had an amazing fourth grade teacher who taught me about the agency of the enslaved, the possibility for revolt, the Nat Turner story. So in some ways I sit back and say, I don't need Nate Parker to teach me but I do worry that we're missing an opportunity for a national conversation. So am I seeing the film? My ambivalence is still deep because even in seeing the film under the guise of this screening, I still feel complicit. And I'm unsure about the wellness of my soul having seen the film and knowing what I know. Thank you. I think that probably captures the epitome of fractured, not being sure about the wellness of your soul if you saw the film. Leslie, if I could follow up, I think I, I um, as you were reading your statement and you talked about your optimism for the historical accuracy of the film, I probably was having the same reaction as your friend when you told her, like, really? That's pretty high expectations. So is there, um, is, you mentioned 12 Years a Slave. Has there been, in your experience, any other film that has raised the level of discourse or initiated a meaningful conversation around slavery? You know, to be, to be perfectly honest, I don't think, I actually thought 12 Years a Slave was an amazing film. Um, but I don't even really feel like 12 Years a Slave sparked much of a conversation. It sparked you know, a Oscar and award buzz, <laughs> but it didn't really spark a lot of conversation. Honestly, I don't think there has really been um, any sort of visual representation that has really sparked a conversation about slavery in this country since the first edition of Roots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I unfortunately happen to be old enough to have remembered <laughs> when Roots first aired on television, although I was a mere child. And, um, <laughs> But we were, I was actually, in, in my household, we were not allowed to watch television as children growing up, but we were allowed to watch Roots. And I remember that in and of itself um, being a huge transformative thing, like, whoa, mom and dad are actually letting us watch this, this must be a big thing. Um, and Roots really had, I think, a transformative effect um, on this nation, whether it be 
kids arguing and beating each other up over it on, you know, playgrounds at school. Um, but it also was adults, um, folks really engaging in meaningful conversation about slavery and the legacy of slavery in this country. And in my opinion, I'm not sure we've seen anything quite like that um, since Roots. So we'll see yeah. soon, uh, once the film is released, the extent to which the conversation continues or if the current distractions um, outweigh the meaningful conversations around the, the history. Um, regarding the, the film, um, and Leslie, you kind of already indicated in your opening statement that you aren't sure about this question, so we'll let you respond to this one last. But Nate Parker is the um, producer, director, and star of the film, so he is for sure the creator of that film. What are your thoughts about the concept that the creator and the creation um, should be considered separately? Which is more important in this scenario? Joni or Wendy? Well, I have no answer for that. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know um, if the creator is more important than the creation or the creation is more important than the creator. I, I do feel like artists, it goes back to my question about um, can you appreciate the art without deifying the artist? So um, the content that they bring, is it separate from their personal life? Yes, it may be. But art is also created from your positionality, which is himself as a male, um, as a black male, um, as a person who has gone through this event. Um, so that's also a part that confuses me as well. <laughs> like, I, I don't think that artists ha have to, um, they're human, so they make mistakes, and I do see that, but um, I don't know. I mean, I'm in, I'm in pure confusion about that, and um, I think that question goes with a lot of artists. I mean, there are plenty of artists who have, um, created artworks and they're also terrible human beings. Um, <laughs> um, but who gets to get away with that though? Like um, some producers, um, what's the one guy's name? Um, Woody well, Allen. Woody Allen. <laughs> um, like so does race and your position in the world allow you to, to continue on and, and be seen as something separate from your creation. So I think that plays in, in part to um, my confusion as well. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think they can be completely separated because you are, that is the lens through which you're making your art. Um, but I don't think that your mistakes or your, um, that, that doesn't necessarily have to impact the the point and the content of the con yeah the content of the art making for me you know I, Joni I love your point about thinking about race and relationship to this question and about when do we get to look away or when do we get to excuse things I mean we have to realize there are so few 
black directors in Hollywood who reached this level of esteem. Uh, this film, is, as Sherry said, gosh, Fox threw as much money as they could um, towards the film. So this is, this is seldom a reality, mm -hmm. right, um, for black artists. And the thing that's been very difficult for me in the Nate Parker story and reading through his story and even his other films, and he's talked about what, his, what he would like to accomplish with his position in Hollywood. He wants to situate himself as a race leader. He wants to perpetuate the narrative that he in some way is representative of and speaks on behalf of black Hollywood, black America. I mean, there have been some conversations that link, if we want to get into the depths of the controversy, um, we have to also recognize Harry Belafonte's questioning and rise of suspicion around why now, um, which is a very um, ingrained Hollywood icon on the one hand with a lot of power to then raise this question of suspicion. And if Nate Parker is situating himself as the future of race in Hollywood, I am very, very uncomfortable with this notion of divorcing him from his art. And unfortunately, in black America, we all too often are asked to look away, oh, just look away, he's the only one. I mean, mm -hmm. it's Bill Cosby, come on. Do we have to give up the Cosby show? <laughs> um, because we just simply don't have enough choices. So one of the things that if, you know, Nate Parker were to ask me, well, what can I do going forward? Because he's apparently asking scholars and feminists and activists, what can he do going forward? And I said, maybe open up an, an institute for directors so that we can have more voices than yours because I'm not interested in only your voice and I'm not interested in your voice speaking on behalf of all voices of black Hollywood. That brings up the point of why, why do we yearn so bad to, to, why do we need to have to have that one person? Absolutely. It puts us in a position to have to look away when we're really yearning for that counter narrative and if that person is bringing it, that's all we've got, you know? So, just being, being put in that position to only have a few is problematic in itself. Mm -hmm. And I think speaks to, um, you know, why a lot of people were at first like, no, this cannot, this is not it, including myself, you know, mm -hmm. because I was, I was just waiting, just waiting for something else to, to pop up after, you know, 12 years a slave and, um, other few movies that represent blackness in a way that counters that master narrative of being, or, or tropes, you know, master narrative of being ignorant or, you know, those very stereotypical roles. Mm -hmm. I, so, guess I, would, I, I guess I would just say that um, what strikes me about these conversations about separating the message from the messenger or the creator from the creation or what have you, for me, it really boils down to the politics of whose behavior gets forgiven and under what circumstances and whose does not. Mm -hmm. And what really strikes me is that in the vast majority of cases, when the perpetrator is a white man and the victim is either, or the survivor is either a person of color and or a woman, Everybody always wants to look the other way. Mm -hmm. 
and people really only want to grapple with the moral question, right, of whether or not we separate these things um, when the, the roles are somehow changed or reversed. You know, as a historian, one of the examples that always pops into my head is about Thomas Jefferson. You know, Thomas Jefferson was not only a massive slaveholder, but raped a 13-year-old girl repeatedly and fathered children by her. This is, this is historical fact. We now have the DNA evidence to support it, <laughs> okay? And yet, if I were to suggest to any of my colleagues that as a result of his behavior, that notes on the state of Virginia should not be taught in early American history classes, I would be laughed out of the history department. What are you talking about? It's one of the founding documents on the concept of liberty and freedom. What are you talking about? We're not going to teach notes on the state of Virginia, right? No one feels like it's even important to talk about his history and his legacy as a slaveholder and a rapist. Everyone's perfectly comfortable looking the other way under those circumstances. The same thing with Abraham Lincoln, right? Abraham Lincoln, for all of what we want to celebrate him as being the emanci great emancipator, was a massive racist and was a colonizationist whose long-term plan for the black population in the United States was to forcibly remove them and send them back to Africa. But for anyone to say, well, let's have a real conversation about Abraham Lincoln, right? Or perhaps we need to question or put into context the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Ooh, we don't want to talk about that, right? Nobody wants to, no one would suggest that we shouldn't teach the I have a dream speech in class, despite the fact that uh, Martin Luther King was a rampant womanizer and an exploiter of women's labor in the movement, right? Same thing can be said for Frederick Douglass, but nobody's talking about removing those documents from the classroom or celebrating them, right, as American heroes. So I just think that at some point, I, I am certainly not trying to, you know, defend or exonerate um, Nate Parker, but I do think that at some point, we have to be willing, if we're gonna have this conversation about the morality and separating the message and the messenger and all these sort of highbrow, highfalutin things, I think we have to be willing to have an honest conversation about who gets excused for their behavior, uh, you know, under what circumstances we look the other way, and under what circumstances we wanna sort of hold certain people up and punish them or offer a critical, radical curriculum, right. right? That allows us to bring all of those things to bear in right. the conversation, because mm -hmm. that's, that's critical learning, right? right? So, yeah. Or motivation for um, Hollywood to, they threw money at this film and at the 12 Years a Slave film, but what about the film about the true story of Abraham Lincoln right. and his true positions? Right. So regarding, Nate Parker and the controversy. We know that the um, family of the victim or alleged victim has not spoken publicly about any of the controversy. So how is this situation being perpetuated? Um, what is the source of the information of the, of the, the controversy? From where does it derive? Joni, do you wanna? 
I don't know where it arrives, but. Um, but, it, <laughs> that was a strong but. <laughs> but um, we, we have to, wherever it derives, we have to be critical of why it derived and why it came up now. Um, and what is the function of why it came out again. Mm -hmm. um, he has, Nate Parker has over 24 movie credits and many of them were blockbusters. And thinking about how this information was not distributed before now, um, you have to critique it. Is it manipulative? Is it strategic? Is the race and power um, integral at the crux of it? Um, it's, it's really about um, who is making strategic moves to kind of drive this um, specific narrative or make um, sustain a canon that is um, that does not hold specific narratives about black people. Um, the art canon is the art canon in general is known for um, being situated about around white supremacy and white white privilege and um, who is able to be called an artist and so thinking about that in connection to the curious, curiousness of how it came out now. Um, I come up with another question about, is this a strategic move to maintain that white canon um, of art and films? And you know, how, how does that function? How does that reality really function um, in the art world? So I guess I didn't answer, but I gave another question, <laughs> another question which I'm filled with. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the, the important piece of this is come out again, right? Mm -hmm. Again. Um, so this isn't the first time that we have heard of this story. Mm -hmm. And certainly students who were at Penn State at the time knew very well this story. This wasn't um, for all the tweets I've read. <laughs> this wasn't new information, um, that this is something that people had rehearsed and had these conversations at local levels um, at various times. But one of the things I think it highlights for us is that we actually don't believe, we don't believe the stories that people who have been sexually assaulted tell. We don't believe the stories. There's always, or not all, well, there's a predominance of doubt that circulates around this important storytelling. And so one of the things that we can take from this in terms of, regardless of why did it come up right now, but that it came up right now, and that if we can learn anything going forward, is that when someone tells you that they've been sexually assaulted, even when they speak from the grave, believe them the first time they tell you. Support them the first time they tell you. Thank you. Okay. Um, speaking of believing victims, I'm going to share some data. Uh, this is data from the Association of American Universities and it's national data related to um, sexual assault on college campuses. 23.1% is the national percentage of female undergraduate student respondents who reported experiencing incidences of non-consensual sexual contact by physical force, 
threats of physical force, or incapacitation, 23.1%. 5.4% is the percent of male undergraduates who reported the same. 10.8% female undergraduate students responded who reported being victims of non-consensual penetration involving force or incapacitation. 69.8% is the percent of female student respondents reporting forced penetration who had some prior acquaintance with each of their attackers. 63.6%, the number of student respondents who believed that it was very or extremely likely that their report of sexual assault misconduct would be taken seriously by campus officials. Now that number may seem high compared to the others, but that's nearly 40% who believe that their reports would not be taken seriously or handled appropriately by officials. Those are national numbers. And unfortunately, some of the numbers for Ohio State in those same categories are slightly higher than the national numbers. This is rape culture, yes? Mm -hmm. And what perpetuates that? from your perspectives? I think, you, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I think um, for one, um, money for college campuses, especially um, rape, cult, rapes and sexual assaults that are not followed through on, um, a lot of money um, is tied up in some of the athletes who um, do participate in, in some of these assaults and the universities don't have any incentives to follow through on that because their money will be then gone down the drain. And I'm not, not trying to stereotype an athlete, but um, he, Nate Parker was an athlete. So like thinking about how um, maybe that impacted his case um, specifically, but I think that money is, is also tied and, and just the idea of it doesn't happen here, and needing to get more students in for money um, is also a problem. So not re reporting it or yeah. downplaying it to, right, right. so that it doesn't adversely affect mm -hmm. um, applications. Thank you. I think, I think one of the most you know, significant and, and disturbing um, drivers of rape culture is something that Wendy um, alluded to a little bit earlier, which is what our society teaches young people about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. And I have to say there's, there's, two, there's sort of two things that I looked at um, when I was you know, obsessed with and trying to figure out what was happening. Um, with, the, with the Nate Parker controversy that really sort of underscored this for me. One was actually looking at the court documents themselves, which I mentioned earlier. Um, but the other was reading um, the interview that Nate Parker gave to Ebony Magazine. That's and a doozy. I, if you haven't it's read a doozy. that one, you should read <laughs> It really is a must read. For anyone who has not read it, it really, it, it's, it is really a must read to get inside his mindset. I mean, not only now, but also in 1999. 
And what those documents really revealed and sort of underscored for me, again, goes back to this issue of what are we in the society valuing and what are we teaching our young people to value? And you know, in my view, I feel like we have created a society and a culture in which young women, and I guess I really should say young girls, because I think it starts in girlhood, mm -hmm. um, from a very young age, regardless of their sexual orientation, are taught and told and reminded and reinforced and told again and reminded again that their value and contribution in this society is predicated on their beauty, their attractiveness, and their sex appeal to the male population. Mm -hmm. And young boys are taught, again, regardless of sexual orientation from a very young age, our society teaches them that their value and contribution in society is about the conquest of young women mm -hmm. and girls. So we have created a, a society in which young people, and this is part of what, for those of you who haven't read it, this is part of what Nate Parker describes in his um, Ebony interview, is the fact that when he was in college, he really felt like his idea about being a man, his idea about being important and valued by his peer group was about sexual conquest and his ability to tell stories about his sexual conquest and the volume of sexual conquest and the number of threesomes and, you know, how many trains he was able to run on a particular, you know. So I really do think that one of the primary things that drives rape culture in this society is what we tell and teach each other. You know, our conversation is not about how, how you are a valuable human being because of your moral center, you know, or because of your spirit, or because of how smart you are, because of how you treat other people. You know, that is not, we, we like to believe that that's what we teach, you know, and in theory, that's what we would like to hope, but that isn't actually what we're teaching each other. What we're actually teaching young girls is that their value is about their attractiveness to men, and what we teach men is that their value is wrapped up in how many women they can, they can conquest. And I feel like until we actually collectively make a decision that we want to create a different society in which we're going to value each other for other things than that, we, this is what we're going to keep seeing. Well, when have we made a collective decision about anything as a society? <laughs> Um, so, in, until that occurs but in we the have. interim. I mean, but we have. The thing is, is yeah. that I feel like as a society, we have. We, there are a whole set of things that people in society enforce and reinforce and celebrate and venerate. Um, so I feel like we actually do. There's always people who dissent from that. Sure. But there is, there, there are big picture messages that we send to each other about all kinds of things, about whose lives matter and who don't, right? So I, I actually think we do have a situation in which the society, not everybody is, not every single person is in agreement about it, but I, there are dominant narratives in this society about all kinds of things. Right, but it's possibilities for disrupting them. 
right? right. Um, and so one of the things that are powerful moments that I think that we teach and perpetuate rape culture is our responses when someone who is a survivor or a victim of a sexual assault speaks up and what we do next. Mm -hmm. When we ask the question, where was she? Mm. She was wearing what? Oh, she was drinking. Oh, well. Mm. Mm. That's unfortunate, but she was drinking. So all of these ways in which we go through the mantra of things, right, that we're actually training judges, right, on how not to engage in that line of questioning because we know, right, we know from the evidence, we know from the moral kind of center that we've created through other policies that those are not excuses, justifications, explanations, right? And we have so much more work to do to train judges on what they can and cannot, should and should not ask, lines of questioning that they should follow, how you should treat um, a survivor in the courts. But those are all ways that we engage and teach what, how we maintain rape culture. So as long as we are slipping on those lessons, then we're maintaining rape culture. As long as every year during move-in week, we have a daughter drop-off, daddies drop your daughter sign, and across from the university, and we claim that there are limited things that we can do in response, we are participating in perpetuating rape culture. And we have to think very critically about our individual acts, around what we're consuming, what we see is funny. When I've taught mm -hmm. um, with my students using the billboards that appeared in their own neighborhoods, and they begin with the chuckle, and we check the chuckle. Um, those are you know, important teaching moments that we disrupt the possibilities for continuance of rape culture. But it starts at the individual level, and then we've got to think about it at institutional level and policy level, mm -hmm. to think about how are we intervening, how are we responding mm -hmm. as a culture when uh, cases are reported. And which is why I think this dialogue is so critically important that we're actually having a dialogue that says that this is not tolerable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not tolerable. I think, um, we heard from, from our panelists, and I, I think you all agree with me, that they have pretty much decided that despite the fact that Nate Parker was acquitted, um, <laughs> that uh, he's guilty. But um, do you believe that his status as an athlete was relevant in his acquittal? And Joni, you spoke some to the, the financial um, components associated with, with athletics and higher education. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to jump on that one? Okay. Is it just too blatantly obvious? <laughs> you know, all of my remarks have been couched in, you know, we've got to think about our own backyard. We've got to think about what's going on at home. We've got to think about what um, how these things manifest for us and for all intents and purposes, we can close our eyes and think about Happy Valley is you know, very much like our own home in ways, in, in terms of the ways in which athletics is quite central to our identity, right, as a university. And I think it's time for us, if I'm gonna call for critical conversations in our classrooms, it's, we have to have critical conversations about 
what our expectations are for every student, right? And I, 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 I go back and forth about how we call out the athlete because I think on some levels we can say that, oh, sure, he got a pass. He was in one interview, they talk about him being treated as the color of water because of his status as an athlete. There's a wonderful podcast um, from NPR's Code Switch that I encourage you um, to take a listen to if you've not um, had a chance to. Um, but that's a really kind of complicated idea that when we think about the intersections of race and athletics and celebrity, that it does not, what we know about intersectionality is it does not always yield the same outcomes mm -hmm. when we put these different things together. Um, and so I would employ us to go and have conversations with athletes in this, with the same vigilance that we have with the incoming freshman student. But this is a conversation for everyone, mm -hmm. right? And that we really need to attack it that way. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'll say. Yeah, I, I definitely don't want to, you know, sort of jump into demonizing athletes. Yeah. But I will say that I think that, um, in my view, one of the factors, and I think there's a number of disturbing factors, but I think that one of the factors that determined why Nate Parker got acquitted was a function of what I view as his caste. Not his class, but his caste position. And what I'm meaning by that is his social status, the, the level of social capital um, that he had. And I, you know, I gave examples before when we were talking about the message versus the messenger about situations and circumstances around who gets forgiven, right? Who we look the other way for, you know, all those, those kinds of dynamics. And oftentimes they do fall sort of neatly along lines of race and class and gender. But in other circumstances, caste is about other things. And in my view, there is no question that his status, the social capital that he had um, at Penn State as the result of being an athlete played a role in how people viewed him and to what extent they were willing to look the other way or to sort of forgive or to brush under the rug. Um, the behaviors that he, um, that he engaged in. I think a good sort of more contemporary parallel example to this are, is the, the series of recent acquittals. I don't know how many of you have followed this, but similar circumstances of um, date rape or acquaintance rape that have taken place in high schools and in college, on college campuses in which the perpetrators have completely walked away. And in all of those cases, the, either the judge or the jury took the position that, well, it would be terrible. We have to worry about the future of this young man. You know, look at all of the things that he's accomplished. In one case, the one where at a boarding school, where a, a male student actually lured, intentionally lured a young woman to his room and raped her. The response from the judge was, you know, this young man is very bright. He has a very promising future. He's been accepted to multiple Ivy League institutions. You know, it would be wrong for us to put him in jail because it would ruin the rest of his life. So the conversation <laughs> for him 
was about his, again, his social capital, his caste position. So no one is concerned about what the rest of her life is going to be like, right? The, the, the judge and jury are concerned about what the rest of his life is going to look like because he occupies a particular social position. And there's copycat cases like this all across the country, a whole slew of recent acquittals in which the language has been almost um, identical, right? A situation in which everyone is saying, this poor young man, what about his promising future? So, you know, no one of course says that when, you know, a, a young man is locked up for years upon end for selling a dime bag of wheat. Well, you know, about we want to lock him up and throw away the key, mm -hmm. right? Because he, uh, he occupies a different caste position. Mm -hmm. But the predatory rapist, oh, we're worried about what happens to his future for going to jail. So I, I do think that this, this issue of caste, right, and who has social capital and the power of that social capital plays a huge role in who gets demonized and punished and for what. So in the words of Bell Hooks, where you, where you fall within the system of the white supremacist patriarchy. Mm -hmm. that, and that correlates with um, what Wendy said about intersectionality, because there are cases where um, a black athlete got 17 years for the same thing that Brock Turner got um, three months for. So thinking about that in terms of who gets to slide, when you get to slide. Um, and thinking about athletes, I, I do think that um, universities really use athletes, like really take advantage of them, helping them gain this social capital, and then at their will, leaving them to grapple with whatever that has pushed them to do, you know, or um, sometimes come into their defense if they're um, really situated in um, the, the capital, the monetary capital that they're um, able to bring to the university. So I think there are a lot of different levels of um, that system. And I mean, if we want to be fair in terms of, of this conversation and thinking about the intersections um, in this conversation, and I don't know the sport very well, but there's some, there um, are various narratives about race and wrestling, right, that would actually encourage us to complicate the story even further in terms of thinking about the hierarchies that exist um, within the sport of wrestling and its understandings around race. And so when I said that it, you know, we don't know the outcomes that we get, I'm really alluding to in that particular sport, the ways in which that race works in terms of intersection with celebrity is not a clearly defined that this is going to help the case as much as we might expect in some other sports. So I think the particulars mm. of, of the sport to understand Relevant. fully the cast. And mm. I just put that out there. Maybe that's a Q&A thing that we can get into with, the, with someone in the audience who's well-versed in wrestling and race. So, <laughs> so we know that, that Nate was acquitted, um, and, but in the, the court of public opinion, um, there is a, a different scenario. What, if anything, do you think he could do to receive redemption, redemption in the court of public opinion or in your own opinions? And, and Wendy, you spoke some to creating an institute for directors, which um, 
could be a start toward penance, possibly, but what, if anything, could he do to, to be redeemed? As I kept reading through all And I have of these, to ask you to make it real sure. succinct because we gotta have time to open yes, it up to the audience. Absolutely. As I kept reading through the accounts and his interviews and with each successive interview, I kept asking, who in the world is his publicist? Right. And how is he not getting this right? Right? So my part about do better. Right? I wanted you to start showing up on college campuses telling your, you know, since he's telling his story, tell your story and then talk about what you've learned from it. Let's open this up as a teachable moment. Don't take an honorarium for the university. Pay, you know, offer to colleges and universities, particularly small colleges and universities, a speaking tour where you're talking and engaging with this conversation for education purposes so that we could all collectively learn from what we now know. I want, I want you to put some skin in the game and do something. Do better, not yeah. just say that you're reflective. Thank you. Leslie? Yeah, I think mine would be almost entirely identical. I, I have given a lot of thought to this issue of um, redemption and forgiveness. And I, I really, I, I actually, I mean, I really appreciate what you were saying about when you know better, you do better. Um, I would like to see him do better. <laughs> you know, I would like him to actually articulate um, what was compelling to me about the Ebony interview was that I felt like he still didn't get it. Like he was starting to get it, but he still didn't really get his part um, in, in what had happened. So I would like to actually see him simply start by acknowledging and really understanding what he did and what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, and then absolutely, I think, how about donate some of the proceeds from the honorariums or proceeds from the film to educating people on college campuses, educating young people in the schools, go on a tour and talk about consent, um, talk about uh, you know, the, the proper way to interact with women and other human beings. You know? Um, I would like to actually see him as you, I love that expression, put some skin in the game. You know, I mean, I'd like to see you show up and actually do something. So acknowledgement would be Acknowledgement, a, a I think, would be right. <laughs> right. Um, I think that he needs to do some deep reflection, um, particularly around how he can use art to counter the narrative that he actually performed in. He performed in this master narrative about masculinity and about what it means to be um, male. And thinking about um, the movie that he's done now, which is a counter story to um, what slaves are and what slavery was about, thinking about using that same medium to counter um, something that, had, that has engulfed him himself, like that he actually performed in. So using the artistry to not only counter the, the master narrative about slavery, but about um, what masculinity is. And I think he has a long way to go with that because his, 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 um, his interview in one he talked about, he would never play a gay male because he didn't want to like say anything about um, or disrupt what a black male, to save the black male. So I think he has a lot of reflecting to do um, on many levels. And I don't, um, I think he has to do that before he even gets into a classroom. <laughs> like he still has a lot of internal work to do. Um, so we, how he we will send this, this uh, video to his publicist. <laughs> and hopefully they will take uh, 
take heed and follow some of those suggestions. We want to open up the uh, microphones for questions from the audience at this point. Don't hesitate, step right up. Dr. Crumb. Um, so, uh, thinking about um, his recompense, right? What does that forgiveness look like? Um, I'm thinking about Picasso and him being psychopath and promoting abusive women. I'm thinking about Miles Davis. And I'm wondering if forgiveness in the past has really just been erasure, right? That um, we just kind of forget. Um, so, I'm wondering. Um, thinking about should Nate go do all of this knowing that people are gonna forget later and he's gonna produce another movie and people are, as long as he doesn't do anything bad again, mm -hmm. he's gonna be kind of forgiven, quote unquote. So I'm wondering, for those of us who are still kind of fractured and wondering what do we do, do we support the art, um, and which ultimately simultaneously kind of supports the creator, is our goal is to prevent that erasure and then, at, 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 what, and is that our job to do that, to continue the conversation until he does what we feel is the proper um, holding his um, accountability, or do we also just kind of be complicit in that erasure? I like I mean, to think position, that we're doing better. Um, I, I, I think the um, situation with Bill Cosby is, is leaning in the direction of no longer allowing the erasure. Uh, and I'm optimistic that that's going to be the case, but go ahead. Um, I'm of the position that we have to, even if he goes on to make another great film, he does the speaking tour, um, it's not this idea that it ever goes away. Like, that's the other thing. It's like the things, the indiscretions of your youth, they don't go away. You take responsibility for them and you talk about what you learned um, out of it. And I think for forever you talk about that moment of learning. Um, and that's how I think we as you know, educators participate in that process of never forgetting. Um, and to speak to, uh, to Jennifer's point um, with Bill Cosby, so I think the, um, the new National Smithsonian Museum on African Americans got it right. Like they added right. phrasing to the placard beside, you know, they didn't take Bill Cosby out of popular culture for African Americans, no. But they discussed in the placard. That's forever teaching, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think we have to engage in those same kinds of things. And I'm ready to take this radical pedagogy class <laughs> that uh, Leslie is teaching to contextualize all of these texts that we hold dear. I think that's exactly the kind of work that we have to do. Anybody else want to respond to that? Yes. I mean, I'll just say very quickly, I, I do think that there is a danger um, in forgiveness, you know, in the sense that forgiveness does often become erasure, right? And so um, I think that part of the, the challenge is to figure out what the process of redemption can actually look like so that it doesn't become erasure. I don't think that process has to become erasure, right? But it's about what is the process that you use, right? To ensure that the process of making restitution and healing actually really is a long-term 
right, restitution and healing rather than just sort of a sweeping under the rug and covering up and let's all just move on, you know, kind of thing. So I think that's why the, the previous question was so important because it was about what would, what would a process of redemption actually look like? Um, and I think that part of the answer to that question is thinking through a process that would ensure that erasure doesn't happen. Thank you. You know, in the university, we teach psychology and sociology. Is there a place at the university for incoming students uh, to learn about, i.e., governmental affairs are not something they teach in high schools anymore. Mm -hmm. So they come in here and they wonder, what is the Supreme Court, and so forth. When they come into the university, is there a place to teach morality? Is that something the university has a responsibility of discussing and perhaps having an elective that is maybe part of that freshman experience? So teaching government, teaching morality, is there a place for that? my classes. <laughs> yeah. oh, no. Government and morality <laughs> together seemed um, counterintuitive. No. Government and morality. But, but no, on a, on a, at a very concrete um, point. Um, I think that there, and heavens knows, this election cycle, there are so many fundamental questions that people actually do need really basic answers to. Um, and answered in a very kind of civil way about what is it that we deliberate in a democracy, right? right. Um, and there needs to be a place for us to have those critical conversations. I think an attempt that the university makes is through our general education courses. Um, our students often say that, you know, gosh, if I could just get through my major without the GEs, but it's the GEs that actually teach how to think critically right. as a citizen, right? Um, so, for example, in my own department, the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, we teach a course called Gender, Sex, and Power. It is an intro-level GE course. We teach students from all across the university. I have as many science majors as I do English majors when I teach that. Pro no, more science majors than English majors or other humanities scholars. And it's in that course that we actually talk about consent. And we talk about sexy ways to get consent, right? That it's not all this you know, horrible experience of you must stop and you must ask. You know, we have fun with it. And we have fun in terms of teaching about, well, what, you know, what is the role of public policy in um, making sure that we can legislate against rape culture? Is there a role for policy and culture? And so those are the places that we get to talk about some of those um, kinds of big ideas. So I think our GE curriculum is one really solid place. In addition to having something explicitly in a curriculum, I think the hidden curriculum is really important too. Like what implicitly can we teach our students, um, which like morality can be taught implicitly through holding them accountable. And I don't think um, when things happen like sexual assault or rape, um, we have to hold them accountable. 
and moving forward. Um, there's there's a news, something in the news right now about a student who just came, became public because she was so tired of waiting for the, the university and the police to act. So she went to the magistrate, I think. She went to someone higher. So I think um, what we do in the hidden curriculum teaches them, teaches people, can teach people how to um, act morally and responsibly and um, yeah, so what we don't do is just important as what we do do. Thank you. I love that question. Um, and I think that it opens up, and I guess in some ways I'm just sort of co-signing on what, what Wendy said, which is that I think it opens up um, a space where we can celebrate what the humanities at you know, American universities have to contribute. I happen to be one of the people who feels like humanities is kind of getting hated on um, <laughs> a bit in this day and age. But I really feel like at the core, the humanities is about getting people to think about what does it mean to be a human being? Um, and not through indoctrination, but through critical thinking and teaching young people um, how to think critically about themselves, their lives, society, the world, what kind of a, a society we want to create. Um, and I think that's the contribution that the humanities um, has to make. And I think, I, I will say very selfishly that I think, you know, in particular, departments like African American and African Studies, like Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, um, like other ethnic studies programs here at OSU, I feel like at their core, the courses that we offer are by default courses about ethics <laughs> um, and about morality. Um, and again, are about trying to get people to think critically about um, the society in, in which we live. So, I mean, I would love to see a, a specific course really engaging those things, but in some ways I feel like we do have courses that do that. People have to show up with the willingness to actually grapple with the hard questions. I think the courses and the training are important. I think one of the major challenges that we have is um, preparing the students, but in the moment, um, the decisions that they make. We know that in 85% of the cases of sexual abuse and sexual assault on campuses, alcohol is involved and we have a major challenge with increasing levels of alcohol abuse on our on our campuses so there are so many um, multiple and complex challenges associated with this particular issue other Within questions the first few weeks yeah. of arriving on the campus this is a wonderful panel i really appreciate uh, your comments, and this is just one of the one of the best events I've attended in the past six months. I teach film studies, and what are the th and I teach in the women's studies department. So I'm always asking and really emphasizing in class, what projects get funded in Hollywood, and, and follow the money, and where does the money go, and and who's making decisions about money? One of the things that's so frustrating about this film is that it's put us in a position of saying, well, if I support this film, am I being complicit? People in Hollywood are looking to see how much money this film makes yes. because if it fails, there's, it's going to be a really good excuse right. not to touch this topic again. And so, you know, I appreciate the, the, the concept of saying, well, I may want to boycott this film, but I think we want to 
think very carefully about what we're boycotting if we make that kind of decision. Meanwhile, I really don't have a, a question so much as a comment really praising what you're emphasizing and that we can both support the project of the film but also really keep this conversation going yes. and just not let this guy off the hook. And mm -hmm. I think we need to do both things. Mm -hmm. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Is there another question? Thank you so much. Um, there are so many gems in what you said, and I really hope that um, the footage gets edited and we get some nice materials out of it. Um, I used to work for an organization called Women Against Rape, and um, I went door to door um, asking for contributions. And for me, I mean, I was very young, so it was surprising the number of um, people who said, well, I got a lot of interesting reactions, but one of, the, one of the common ones was, well, I think that rapists should be castrated, you know. Um, that's a very common kind of, you know, uncomfortable situation that that creates with that response. And I think it has to do with wanting, like, what I'm hearing um, you saying is that we need to do work on this, that we all need to do, do the work and um, and somehow by focusing on Nate Parker or on an individual who has, who has um, done wrong, that I think somehow psychologically it maybe feels good to say, well, he should be punished, and then I'm, now I'm exonerated from doing the work. And, um, and yeah, so I think, I guess my hope from, you know, what might be done with this footage, because you've taken time out of, I'm sure, your very busy lives to do the work for it. We've just been sitting here listening and kind of hearing you work out all of your feelings about what's going on. And I just really hope that in academia, we come up with, we uh, come up with like um, some way to raise awareness about uh, discourse and uh, master narratives and what those mean. And so I feel like students get stereotypes and they, they get that they're damaging, but I feel like part of the work that we could do in the university community is to have a sort of engagement with the media, because I mean, what you've been talking about in this panel is so big because it was the media reaction and the content of the film and the larger discourses, and it's just, I mean, how can you possibly really <laughs> cover all of that? And I just want to say thank you and that thank you. Uh, I hope we can do work on discourse analysis and take, take away those big words and sort of talk about those large conversations that drowned out the other conversations and so that we don't, we don't hear the other side, you know, because again, it is that awkward position where we're like, well, should I go or shouldn't I go to the movie? But really what we should be talking about is what are the conversations we're having in our society? How are we co-creating culture together on a daily basis and how can we be become conscious of how we're doing that. I mean, these narratives have been around since the age of exploration, and people don't know that. So yeah, that's, those are important points. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for being a part of the panel today and for kind of affirming for those of us who are not necessarily experts that that internal struggle about seeing the film is kind of a natural progression after you find out um, kind of the information that we found out. Um, you touched a little bit earlier on um, Nate Parker's kind of cast as an athlete. 
um, being a part of the decision of whether or not he was convicted of the charge. Um, but we know uh, John Celestine, who was also there with him, was also an athlete, but eventually was convicted um, of the charge and served some time. Um, and so I'm just wondering uh, if Nate Parker had uh, in some way been convicted, served some type of jail time, um, or, or had some other type of um, uh, sentence imposed upon him as a result of this, would we, would we be less fractured about uh, whether or not to see the film, um, or if we would have a different idea of if he knows better and thus would be able to do better? I'm just kind of grappling because we don't, I know Nate Parker is a little more, is a lot more famous than John Celestine, but we're not having conversations about boycotting any other films that John Celestine writes for, co-produces, um, those types of things. So I'm wondering how uh, they're two kind of different results from the same incident uh, plays into how we see going to see this particular film. Mm -hmm. And I believe that uh, John Celestine's conviction was overturned yes. as well, but he did serve a penalty. That's a, a really good point and a great question. Well, you make me want to do my homework to see what else he's writing for. <laughs> um, but. Um, I really love your point. And one of the things, and Leslie, you've done some of the slugging through, um, and I've done just a very cursory amount of reading the court documents. Um, and you know, when we think about part of what informed my ideas about when we know better, we do better, are these things about, you know, I was playing just, you know, I was playing the role of a justice and trying to figure out kind of what were the points in this case that um, led to the court's decision. And one of the things about what we know differently is that a very kind of pivotal point lands for Nate Parker's case is that he had a previous relationship with this woman. He had had a sexual relationship with this woman. So for the court at that time, that completely clouded and discounted this notion that consent could be rescinded. We know better now. Right? And so I think that that's a little bit of kind of the difference in treatment between the two of them when we could stand them up and say that they were very similar in that moment. Now fast forwarding in terms of thinking about you know, how do we stack them up today and why are we offering this differential treatment? So for some, we barely even know his name. You know, mm -hmm. it's, we don't even talk about it. Um, and it is about celebrity culture in this country, right? So we, we we go after, we yearn for what more can we know about celebrities, right? And so that is in part um, a kind of feature um, of our culture. Uh, is it sufficient? No. I think we need to do our homework and figure it out. And if we're going to raise these questions about one, we could raise these questions um, about both and figure out what have they both learned. What, and we don't really have even any great any interviews from him. Right, Celestine, about his reaction or how he thinks about himself now, um, and you know, journalists need to do their jobs and ask him, and then we can figure out what should be our treatment going forward in relationship to him. It's your, a great your question actually made me think about what uh, Joni was saying about there being some uh, strategic approach to how uh, the controversy is being perpetuated as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great question. 
Um, and I've actually spent a lot of time trying to, and it's part of the reason why I kind of keep reinserting Jean Celestine's name back into mm -hmm, the conversation mm -hmm. every chance I get, because I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why isn't anybody talking really about him? You know, they, they're dragging Nate Parker through the mud, but they don't really want to talk about him. And it is, you know, he was the one who got convicted, right? So why are we sort of, you know, stringing up Nate Parker and no one's really talking about Jean Celestine? Um, I do think that um, part of it has to do with the issue of, of fame, right? Obviously, Nate Parker is the producer, the director, the star, the writer, you know what I mean? He, he is the film, right? So um, a lot of it does have to do with the, the sort of attention on him because of that. But I also do think that there is, there is uh, an aspect of what you were pointing out um, in there as well, which is that another part of our culture is that we are sort of a punitive nation. Like, we really like punishing people, um, and we like, you know, raising up heroes and then tearing them down, and we like identifying people as you're the bad one and punishing them. And people do sort of have a response to um, sort of a, a punitive culture by saying, that person got punished, it's over, right? And so I do think there is, I, I do think part of it has to do with Nate Parker's fame, relative fame by comparison to to Jean Celestine, but I do think that there is an extent to which there are some people who feel like, well, Jean Celestine got convicted, so it's over, right? And they want to go after um, the other person who they feel like ought to have been punished and wasn't punished in the way that, that he should have been. So I think there is a little bit of that sort of punitive culture um, in there as well. I wonder, too, if it, had, it may have had anything to do with the fact that um, Nate Parker was kind of the uh, primary uh, individual um, that initiated the, uh, the, the scenario with the right. woman. Right, yeah. Do we have one last question? Um, actually, a, not perhaps a question so much as a comment. I, too, have thought it's been quite odd that um, Jean Celestine was not really brought into this narrative to any great degree. He has worked on, on other films, and I, I think there's no question that Hollywood, like every place else, has a hierarchy, and if you're called the director and the star and what have you, then people are automatically more interested. Um, I also did read, though, along the way that um, he was convicted and he appealed and it took three or four years for the case to come back to the court. And by that time, the victim was unwilling um, to testify any further. And so at that point, I don't know if the conviction was technically overturned or if it was just dropped at that point. I've never been able to kind of ferret out the precise nature of um, his status. Um, but I do think it's really important in this conversation, and, and we haven't made note of it. Um, this woman, 13 years later, took her own mm -hmm. life. And um, the fact that she took her own life at some point was used as some kind of evidence that she may well have been mentally unstable, which was then, I think, meant to cast aspersion on her original accusations. And um, whether or not there was any mental instability, um, 
the fact is that the nature of the judicial system in systems uh, in in situations of sexual violence is such that the victim is victimized again and again mm -hmm. yes. and again by having to retell their story yes. to another judge, another jury. And I think that's one of the issues um, we can't address today, but it really bears consideration because it is the reason why there are so few people willing to report these incidents. And um, we have not I think as a society, and I don't think um, the judicial system has in any way addressed just how difficult it is for women in particular uh, to come back over and over again to sort of make their case. Mm -hmm. That's a really good I point. Mean, oh. <laughs> oh no, I was just gonna say, I think that's a, a really important point, and I, maybe you will pick up on this. I was gonna say, I think it reaffirms something that you know Wendy said a little bit earlier, which is, part of what perpetuates the rape culture in this society is what do we do at the moment? Like, what do we do when someone comes forward, right? How do we respond? How is the case treated? How does the judicial system engage with that person? All of those things, right, are tied up into what perpetuates the culture. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing about, you know, the prevalence of sexual assault for the age groups that we are so connected to is so high, right? The reporting rates, we know the Justice Department says these are underreported because of the culture in which we live, right? But so the idea that someone will tell you that this has happened to them, we all bear a responsibility to know what's the next thing that you do. And casting doubt, right? Oh, no. Like that, oh no, that couldn't have happened already. That's a real common empathy phrase, but right there you've dismissed the story. So I encourage all of us to lean on um, our own campus's um, Office of Sexual uh, Assault and Civility to take a look at their website, figure out what it is that you must do in response. What's a good set of responses, an appropriate set of responses to really do the support work that we imagine um, that we're doing that would allow people um, to be supported in telling their stories as opposed to silence and our own participation in perpetuating the rape culture. That's a great segue, Wendy, into the last question that I want to ask. We have about a minute and a half. So um, it'll be the headline that you'll provide in response to this question. But what are the um, opportunities we have to um, capitalize on the teachable moment that this controversy has brought us and to um, take into our homes, into our classrooms, into our communities? Um, what can we do? to continue this conversation and to assure that erasure doesn't occur? Well, as an artist, um, I investigate images, like I critique images and imagery. So um, thinking about Nate Parker as an artist, um, there are two ways to think about that in his situation. So the actual movie, but also how he was socialized to perform within this. Mm -hmm. This, this narrative through imagery, through the media, um, through menstrual, I mean, through every piece of um, imagery that has been created to um, teach us who we are um, as far as female, black, 
heterosexual, homosexual, whatever um, identifier you have, I think it's my job to critique those images and um, help my students build that critical consciousness and the tools to have and the language to um, critique those things. So as an artist and an art educator, I think that's, that's my job as far as um, using imagery to um, make sure that things aren't silenced in the way that they easily can be with like those master, master artists like Picasso who, you know, did those horrible things. <laughs> Thank you. Leslie? Well, um, I'm really taking in in our homes, classrooms, and communities, and certainly in the classroom. These are issues that we can take up. There's a fabulous group of graduate students who are going around um, giving a really great presentation about safe sex, and it's not, as they call it, it's not your mama's sexual education course. Um, and they really have been doing this kind of radical pedagogy in the classroom of, you know, thinking about how, like I said, consent can be fun, it can be sexy, I can do this and ask you, did you like it, and we can keep going, and if not, you know, we can negotiate it. So that kind of like fun stuff, bringing those kinds of things into your classroom is a way to expand the conversation. I have an eight-year-old little boy, and this is like creeping into every conversation and interaction, because he also has a three-year-old little sister who he adores, he worships, and she is so selective in her love. <laughs> and so he's always wanting to kiss her. Like he, like, and I, I understand, she's just like so juicy and wonderful. Um, and she says, no. And he's like, oh please, come on, let me kiss, give me a kiss, give me a kiss. And I said, did you hear her? She said, no. And anytime someone is rejecting your advances, you gotta respect that. Maybe later, come back and ask her a different time. And he drops his head. I know, you gotta ask for every bit of love you get in the world. Yes, you do. So I mean, that's a small step in our home that this is, you know, teaching a different culture around. I'm teaching my daughter that this is your body and you get a chance even with your brother, who wants to love you deeply, that you get a chance to accept or reject those moments of expression. Mm -hmm. And then for him, which is radically, I mean, I so resonated with Gabrielle Union's write-up, and again, read it. I mean, she's talking about like all the lessons that we have to teach young black men, right? And this is an additional lesson, but I don't have to make it a painful one. It starts with your sister. She said, no, move on. Thank you, Try it again later. Less. Yeah, I, I, I think in the classrooms, it's about um, being willing to raise the difficult, controversial issues. Um, and that comes from the faculty. Um, you know, I will say that I often talk to my faculty colleagues around the country, and I'm surprised by how hesitant so many of them are to raise controversial issues in the classroom because they don't know how are the students going to respond and what am I going to do and da, 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 da. so I think that um, the faculty have to be willing to show up in the classrooms and have the difficult um, conversations and I also think that students have to be willing to bring the topics um, up themselves so when you read about things in the news when you uh, you know are exposed to information. Bring it to your classrooms, you know, raise it as a topic. Engage um, your fellow students in the classroom. Talk to them in the dormitories. Talk about it over lunch, you know. Actually be willing to have 
you know, important conversations with the people in, in um, your lives. I think um, there is, and I will just say this very quickly, it's a, a bigger thing, but I do think that, you know, there is a conversation that needs to happen within the black community. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, <laughs> about, you know, how we wanna treat each other, how we wanna, you know, engage with each other, how we wanna, so I, there is a conversation that needs to happen there. And um, I'm just going to leave that there. Yeah, you're, um, you're going to have to leave that there. That's, that's an additional two-hour uh, panel discussion. But uh, Wendy, thank you for that phrase. I'm going to start the bumper st sticker business. You have to ask for every little bit of love you get. <laughs> or thank your son, whichever of you uh, coined that phrase. I want to say thank you to all of you for joining us for this conversation tonight. Thank you so much, Sherry and the Wexner Center folks, again, for your courage and for allowing us to use this platform to have this important conversation. And thank you so much to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. better, you do better. Thanks to our moderator, Jennifer Beard, and our panelists, Leslie Alexander, Joni Boyd-Acuff, and Wendy G. Smooth. The Wexner Center's Director's Dialogues are made possible, in part, by a lead endowment gift from an anonymous donor. Learn more about this and other engagements at wexarts.org.